You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. All right, good morning, everybody. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is week 3 of Romans. Very exciting, right? Very exciting. We're looking at one verse today, one verse, Romans 1, verse 16. We're going to have our hands full without one verse, the power of God for salvation. So, what if right now I said, time out, we're all going to leave this place, we're going to take the gospel to the streets. Now, you know I didn't do that first hour because... You would have heard about it already, okay? It would have just blown up social media. I realize that. But let's just say, I said, seriously, we're going to go right now. We're going to go to a local park. We're going to sing all these songs. We're bringing, our, we're bringing the piano even. We're going to sing all these songs. We're going to pray. We're going to praise God as loud as we can. And I'm going to get up and preach open air to whoever will listen. How would you feel? You know, we'd wrestle, we all would wrestle with embarrassment, right? This is kind of embarrassing. I don't think I can, you know, sing as loud as I usually do out here in the park. And then you'd have to ask, am I ashamed to do this? I mean, how might people respond? We'll probably get some ridicule, right? Now, I want you to think of the most embarrassing or shameful moment in your life and what if that was actually the best thing for you that God would use to bless you an unmarried woman gets pregnant she feels shame but she decides to have her baby which becomes her greatest joy Gianna Jessen uh, was being aborted by saline abortion, and she survived. This baby survived, and it caused her to have cerebral palsy. And now she realizes that this is what God has used to bless her the most. Now she speaks out against abortion. She speaks for disability rights, and most importantly, she shares her hope in Jesus Christ. And the thing that was maybe the most embarrassing or shameful thing in her life became her greatest blessing. And I want you to see today that the thing that brought the most shame to Paul was what God used most for God's glory and Paul's good. Because Paul was not ashamed of, nor was he offended by, nor was he stingy with God's power to save. The gospel. So if you're able, I want you to stand with me. I'm going to read, and we're going to read one verse. And yes, we're going to stand to read one verse. If we would stand to read all of them, wouldn't it stand to reason we would stand to read one? One verse. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. There's, there's a lot of Bible verses in my sermon. The only perfect part of any of our worship services is when we are reading the word of God. So here's this one verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts today. Change us by your spirit, through your word, for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat there. So this week we're looking at one verse. Next week we're looking at one verse. Maybe we'll do this through the whole book of Romans. I mean, it makes it simple, right? One verse. This is, this is big. These two verses we're looking at this week and next. Romans 1, 16 and 17. They contain the most life-transforming truth that God has ever put into human hands. It's big. If you understand and positively respond to this truth, your life and eternity are transformed and completely altered. Because the gospel saves and changes us. So it stands to reason that we should be excited about it, that we should exuberantly share it with anyone and everyone. And that doesn't mean you have to change your personality. Be yourself and share Christ with with everyone. But we're not to be ashamed of, offended by, or stingy with God's power to save. That is the point of this one verse. But true believers are not ashamed of, not offended by, not stingy with God's power to save. The gospel. Everyone needs to hear the good news. It's exhilarating. Now, what we have seen so far in Romans really sets the stage for everything that comes after. Uh, We've seen the theme, God's righteousness, revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ, right standing credited to all who believe. It is a glorious truth. You want to bask in that truth as a believer. Uh, This is what you want to shout out, that God justifies guilty sinners by grace through faith in Christ alone. And like a map, Romans outline keeps us on point. We've got a simple outline, four points for this whole letter. First four chapters, it's about believing the gospel. We're seeing mankind's sin and God's provision of salvation. It's like when you go to a jewelry store and they bring out a bunch of diamonds and they lay a dark uh, you know, uh, piece of cloth out, maybe black velvet or something, and put the diamonds on there. Starting in in verse 18 of chapter 1, we're going to see the underbelly of humanity. We're going to see our depravity, our lostness, but then we're going to see God's provision of salvation, the beautiful diamond of the gospel set against our sin. Moving on to chapters 5 through 8, it's about resting in the gospel and how God is progressively sanctifying every believer Even though we struggle with sin and we know we will have ultimate victory, uh, you see that crescendo at the end of chapter 8. Chapters 9 through 11 is about rejoicing in the gospel. You see God's electing grace, you see his sovereignty and salvation, and you see mankind's accountability to God. And then you get to chapters 12 through 16, it's all about living the gospel. I want to remind you what I said Pretty much every week we've been in Romans so far, but 
Romans isn't just, oh, chapters 1 through 11 is really theological, and then 12 through 16 is practical. It's all theological, and it's all practical. It just gets even more pointed in chapters 12 through 16 about how we should live due to glorious gospel truth. It's awesome. We've looked at 15 verses so far in Romans. The first seven verses revealed some very important things as you're starting off a a, a book, and, and Paul just jumped right in the deep end, and he basically went deeply theological right away. He revealed his identity, servant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. He reveals Christ's identity, which is the big point of the first seven verses, that he's God's son, descended from David, declared the son of God in power in the resurrection, and, and this is the biggest part, he is Lord over all. Everyone has to reckon with that. He also identified the believer, called to belong to Christ, loved by God, called to be holy and Recipients of grace and peace. Last week we looked at verses 8 through 15, and and it's just basically Paul putting feet to facts. And he's telling them, hey, look, I serve God, and and I want to see you, because he'd never met them, and I want to serve you. I want to, to serve amongst you. And he's eager to preach the gospel to these believers in Rome. Then you get to verse 16. And what you see is that point that true believers are not ashamed of, offended by, or stingy with God's power to save. That's our outline. We're going to look at those three things. What it means to not be offended, what it means to not be uh, ashamed and and not be stingy with the word of God, with the gospel. And, And I want you to notice something. At this point in time, when you get to verse 16, something dramatically changes. So up till now, Paul is talking about his call to ministry. He's talking about the Romans' testimony. He's talking about uh, his desire to work with them. But now there's this huge focus shift, and it's very huge. It shifts from his ministry totally to the gospel. And so from here on out, Romans is not about Paul's plans. It's about God's purposes in the gospel all the way through. And so the first thing, we're going to just dive in here at verse 16 there, in our, the very first phrase of verse 16, that we see that true believers are not ashamed of God's power to save. He starts out, I'm not ashamed. He's saying it right off the bat. I'm not ashamed. That means disgraced. That means dishonored. I'm not disgraced by the gospel. I'm not dishonored by it. He confesses the gospel publicly, and, and he's bearing witness to its saving power unashamed. What does that mean? Well, there's two ways you can be ashamed. Now, there's the subjective way that we usually think of. There's the objective way we don't usually think of. So we'll take those in order. First, the subjective way. It's our feelings. So I think, oh, I feel ashamed, right? Uh, I feel embarrassed versus proud of something. Uh, I want to hide and, or apologize instead of loudly proclaiming something. Now, the gospel means good news, good tidings, okay? So there's a note of excitement with that. So for example... This is the kind of message that you would shout across the street to your neighbors or your friends. You know, um, the war is over. Uh, It's a baby girl. Um, I can't say my favorite team won because that didn't happen yesterday. Um, But the gospel is an exhilarating, exciting thing. So you would, it's like you're shouting out salvation. Yes. God welcomes sinners Because of Christ's work. Woo! 
hasn't learned to be ashamed, by the way? New believers. Brand new baby believers in their brand new baby believer diapers. They have not learned to be ashamed. Um, now, are there any kindergartners here right now? I know they're, they're, are there kindergartners here right now? Kindergarten's awesome, isn't it? I mean, I remember when I was in kindergarten, you got to have Oreos and, and milk and have nap time. <laughs> I remember nap time was uh, interesting for me because you had to be really quiet. And uh, whoever was the quietest got the little music box next to their head, and I never got that, and I felt very, <laughs> felt very uh, profiled or something. I don't know. Um, but a kindergartner, let's just say this, this room was filled with kindergartners. You're all kindergartners. And I asked the question, who can dance, sing, and draw? All your hands are up because you guys are the best. But let's just say, any seventh graders in here? Seventh graders? Anyone? Anyone? They're awesome. They're all in junior high group right now. There were some in here first hour. Now, you're going to ask that same question to seventh graders who are awesome, and you're going to say, who can sing, dance, and draw? (laughs) No one. You get to seventh grade, you cannot sing, dance, or draw anymore. Why is this? It's because they're wise now. Oh, they're wise. They have experience, and they realize that comparison is a thing of life, right? And they're comparing themselves to everyone else, and like, I'm not as good as that person or that person. I'm better than them, I guess. They've had a loss of confidence. But why would someone be ashamed of the gospel? I can think of all sorts of reasons why I've been ashamed of the gospel, why you might be ashamed of the gospel. First thing that comes to my mind is guilt over sin. You know, I'm not living a life that's pleasing God, and I'm doing things that that God doesn't want me to do, and I'm just guilty. So now I'm going to bring up the gospel to somebody? Hmm, I don't think I can. Or, or how about this? Uh, I fear to stand on the firing line. You know, I don't want to... Who wants to be mistreated? You know, uh, think about Peter's denial of Christ. P- Jesus looks at him at one point, and he's... Peter's ashamed. He just denied Jesus. So in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 15, he kind of does the makeup on this one and says, look, don't do what I did. <laughs> All right? Um... Here's what you should do, and, and we quote this all the time in Christian circles, right? First uh, Peter 3.15, uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. You can finish it with me if you want to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that's within you, yet with gentleness and, and, and respect. Okay. And we usually take that to mean, and what we, we superimpose uh, the American 21st century mindset on it, and we say, oh, what this means is that I need to be ready if anyone asks. Now, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure nobody asks. Uh, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, here's the deal. The gospel's not a live grenade, okay? It's not a hot potato. Ah, i got to get that out of my hands, all right? It is the greatest life-giving gift ever. 1 Peter 3.15, you know what that really is talking about? Because this is a, in the context of what's going on. Peter's saying, when they put you on the firing line... He's basically saying, you're going to be interrogated under duress. And when they do that to you, and when they're pointing the finger at you and saying, demanding, you tell me right now, what's the basis for your hope? Be ready to give that answer. That's way different than going, you know, hey, I see something different about you. I've just wondered what it is about you. You We all want someone to ask us that, right? But we don't want anyone to say, um... I hate what you stand for, and I just want to hear it from your, I just want to hear it from you. What exactly do you believe? 
Another reason why you might be um, ashamed of the gospel is because you're arguing against the truthfulness of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture. You're denying God's attributes. You're not going to want to stand with God on that one. It's startling with me, and, I, and I'm just going to say this is rant alert, okay? It'll be over in about 30 seconds if you want to tune out. Um, maybe a minute. Um, it's startling to me. It's just really startling to me how many Christian leaders don't believe the Bible anymore. Uh, they don't believe it's inerrant or infallible or inspired, and, and they won't acknowledge it as binding on their conscience or their ministry. And what they do is they masquerade behind a facade of giving answers to pressing social issues and hot topics, and they reject God's authoritative word. And you don't even know what's happening because you're being deceived by them because they're really gifted in the way they say what they say. And they're perpetuating falsehoods, and they're literally spouting uh, recycled heresies. And what they do, they're like pretzel makers. They deftly twist scripture, and they chow down on people's biblical illiteracy and ignorance, seriously. They're wolves in evangelical clothing and insist they're right, and they're free-falling, and they're taking a lot of people with them, and it's grievous. It is deceptive. It is scary. And a lot of Christians buy this garbage because they don't know any better. They don't know what the Bible says. And this deception looks like orthodoxy, so they think it's all right. But here's the deal. You look in the Bible, and you're like, you know, what God wants from us and wants to inspire in us is a Berean-like verification of facts, biblical discernment, Uh, Admit the emperor has no clothes on when the emperor has no clothes on. Great story, by the way. Now, I got to tell you a story about when I was uh, a young pastor. I was just starting out, and the church I was uh, serving at, uh, they always gave the young guys the the tough assignments, okay? You're going to go do this wedding. You're going to go speak at that event. And so I'm sitting there at staff meeting one day, and they said, Mike, you are going to speak at the community Thanksgiving service this year. You're the, the newest guy on staff. It's yours. I'm thinking, yes, an opportunity to preach. So I get up, I prepare this message, and I give this Jesus-drenched gospel message. And I'm thinking, well, I hope I, hope I didn't blow it, but I, 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 think, I think I gave him the gospel and all this. And the next week, the pastor calls me into his office, and he's like, um, I've been getting some letters from, from area pastors. They're upset with what you said. Uh, they basically are saying, how dare you bring Jesus into the conversation? How, how dare you be so bold about the gospel? And I love what my pastor said. He goes, you keep preaching the gospel. I'll take care of those guys. They don't believe the gospel. You know, Jeffrey Wilson said this. He said, the unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. An inoffensive gospel is also an inoperative gospel. And then he closes with this. Thus, Christianity is wounded most in the house of its friends. We do have that subjective fear, that embarrassment, that ashamedness. Probably too often, but... We need to talk about the objective response because that's what this verse is actually pointing to. That's the main meaning. It's not where we usually go, but that is the main meaning of not ashamed. It is objective. And it's the idea of people publicly discrediting you um, and showing you to be wrong. And what Paul is saying here is, I, this is the main meaning of this when he says I'm not ashamed, I am not going to be publicly discredited 
for the gospel, I will not be shown to be wrong. Paul is eager, as he said in verse 15, to preach the gospel to those in Rome because he knows it is powerful and and he's not going to be disgraced by it. He's not ashamed of the shameful gospel. It's good news for complete salvation. The complete undoing of all that results of the fall and it restores God's glorious ideal for humanity. This is God's way of saving people. And it's not only what God did about our salvation, but also what he is doing. He has prepared salvation, he's produced it, and he's working it out in us. Working out his salvation in us. If you're a believer today, you're getting his salvation worked out in you by his power. This is what Paul was praying in Ephesians 1.19. He said, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And it's a continual working that he's referring to. It's the continual working of God's power. Same idea in Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, God is working his salvation through us. It's it's the idea of Philippians 2.13, which talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. God is basically saving his people. All he has purposed and provided uh, in regenerating, in sanctifying, in preserving his people, uh, in glorifying his people. It's all by his power. That's all summed up in Romans 8, 28, by the way. So Paul is eager to, eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed. This is why he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8, he said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Shame brings fear. Makes us less eager to preach the gospel even though we know we should. And the world is telling us the gospel is weak, right? It's telling us it's weak. Paul is confident he won't be ashamed as someone who preached something untrue or weak. Here he is at the seat of the Roman Empire. Picture this. He's there among the wise and contemptuous. And Paul doesn't shrink from the message of a crucified carpenter or a murdered Galilean. They're laughing at him. They're telling him his learning has driven him mad. They're telling him he's crazy. But Paul doesn't take stock in people's opinions or or social standing or customs or even their scorn. He's not concerned with that. So to be ashamed includes uh, the subjective feeling of shame that we feel, but also that objective shame that comes at us by being publicly disgraced. And Paul's saying, I'm not going to be publicly disgraced by the gospel. Because it's God's power. So true believers are not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed to speak up for it. We won't be shamed by it. Paul doesn't feel any need to apologize or be embarrassed by it. But then there's another angle on this, another way to translate ashamed. And and it brings us to the second point. True believers are not offended by the gospel, by God's power to save. So the other way you translate ashamed is offended. You have to ask, how is the gospel offensive? Okay, how is the gospel offensive? Those that are believers aren't offended by the gospel, but people get offended by the gospel. How does it offend? Well, the gospel first offends because it tells us that salvation is free and undeserved. 
Literally, we're being told we're such spiritual failures that the only thing that will suffice is 100% gifted salvation. That offends moral people who think they have the edge over less moral people. Also, the gospel offends us by telling us Jesus died for us. We are so wicked in our sins that only the death of the Son of God could save us. Well, that offends the effort of popular belief in the innate goodness of man. You see how the gospel is offensive. The gospel offends our pride because it tells us that trying to be good isn't enough. No good person is going to get saved. Only those who come to God through faith in Christ alone. The gospel offends those who want a safe and comfortable, easy life. Because remember, salvation was accomplished by Christ's suffering, and following him means suffering too. And I think the biggest one, the corker here, is the gospel offends us by telling us we're not God. Now, Christians know that's good news. Aren't you glad that you're not God? But non-Christians are blinded to that truth. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 says, that, Paul says, if our gospel is hidden, if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Those outside of Christ. Because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They, they don't see that. And they don't see that they're not God. We've got to get this very straight. That God decided one way only for those he has called to be saved. And it's the gospel. What's the gospel? Paul tells us right here in this verse. So he starts. He goes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is. Now he's describing it. It is the, the power of God for salvation. That's what the gospel is. It's not mere words. It's power. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the gospel did not come in, in just words only, but in power, in a demonstration of the spirit of God. So the gospel is not just an idea or a philosophy, in it, in the gospel, words and power come together. Uh, it doesn't bring power. It, it, it doesn't just have power. It is power that transforms and changes. The word power here is the Greek word dunamis, and it refers to the intrinsic power that transforms human lives. It's where we get our English word dynamite or, you know, TNT, basically, explosives, right? Uh, a good way to put it is it's dynamic. He's describing the gospel here. It's dynamite. It's dynamic. God flexed his muscles, bared his arm, greatest display of the power of God, and you see all these displays of the power of God in the Bible. Three primary huge displays of the power of God. First, in the incarnation. Well, you got the creation, of course. In the redemptive plan of God, you got the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, where Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power, and then our salvation, us getting saved. It's a, a huge display of the power of God. And the reason it's powerful to save anyone who believes is because believing is not a human achievement. So anyone who gets saved, they get saved 100% by God and his grace and mercy. And, and that 
that gospel is able to save without distinction anyone that grasps that rescue. And so Paul is not ashamed because the gospel is not weak. What does it power do? It, it gives salvation. It changes your mind and your heart and your life and your understanding. And it does what no power on earth can do. And we live in a time when there's a lot of displays of power. But this is what no power on earth can do. It can save you, reconcile you to God, and guarantee a place with God forever. No other power on earth can do that. Fifth century Syrian bishop named Theothered um, said that the gospel is like a chili pepper. And I love that. When I first read it, I'm thinking, hey, I guess they had chili peppers back then, right? He's what he said. This guy in the fifth century, he goes, you know, on the outside, a chili pepper looks cold, but you bite into it and you experience uh, the, the feeling of burning fire. The gospel, he said, can appear like an interesting idea or philosophy, but take it in personally, you will find it full of power. Now, some friends of mine whose son died three years ago this week call the day of his death his arrival day because that's the day he arrived in paradise with Jesus. And it's only because of the power of the gospel. I want you to notice something else, uh, the word salvation here. I know we take it one way, but he's referring to something different than how we usually take it. Usually we say, oh, I got saved. You know, I, I came to believe in Jesus. That's not what this is referring to. Salvation here is referring not to the initial becoming a Christian, but the final rescue of a Christian at the end of the Christian life. The entire salvation God provides. Now, think about this. We've been justified by faith in Christ, but we will not be fully saved until the end. Uh, Romans 13, 11 makes this really clear. Paul says, salvation is nearer to us today than when we first believed. We're one step closer to home. Now, the gospel is God's power to make us Christians and keep us Christians to the end. It's his preserving power. The salvation. What is this salvation? It's, it's deliverance. It's rescue. You're getting delivered and rescued from something. If you were drowning in the pool, you'd be delivered from the pool, from drowning in the water of the pool, right? So what's salvation? It's deliverance and rescue from sin and death and hell and the wrath of God. I heard the other day of a person who was, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, jumping out of a plane with a parachute. You got it. They were skydiving. And their parachute didn't open. Of course, they're falling to their death, right? Very quickly. But all of a sudden, a fellow skydiver came along and grabbed onto them as they're coming and, and saved this person. That's pure, unexpected salvation. Wouldn't you say? Psalm 3.8 tells us salvation belongs to God. He's the only one that can save. And what are we saved from? We're saved from the power, the penalty, and sometimes, the, and some, someday, excuse me, someday, the presence of sin. To the praise of God's glorious grace. You're delivered from the penalty of sin. You're delivered from the power of sin. Uh, and, the, and you will have a future deliverance from the presence of sin. And, and here's the thing to remember. Everyone that is saved is rescued by the gospel of Christ. There is no other way that someone gets saved. 
And, and to, to make that point really clear, Paul is now going to devote chapter one, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20 to prove that point. We're going to be seeing that a lot. So true believers are first not ashamed of the gospel in, in both that subjective and objective way, and they're not offended by it. They're not offended by it. Now, the third point that we want to make here is that true believers are not stingy with God's power to save. What's that based on? It's based on Paul saying, to everyone who believes. Not stingy, not you know, keeping it to yourself like your favorite cookie or coffee or friend. You, you, you're a giver. You're not hoarding the gospel. You're a giver of the gospel. And the reason why is because, remember, and I said this, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I think. The gospel is not primarily about your salvation. The gospel is primarily about exalting Christ. Christ gets more glory the more people hear the gospel. So Paul says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. The only way to receive this gospel, this salvation, and its power is through faith, through believing. For anyone and everyone who believes, you, you believe because God gives you faith to believe. Now, as far as, as, far as people looking at you uh, can see and tell, you decide to believe one day and you follow and obey Jesus and become a freak, right? Something changes, they think you're weird now, they thought you were cool before. What happens? Well, it's true. What, is, what happened is you decided to believe and follow and obey Jesus. It's true. And what had happened behind the scenes that you realize later is God changed your heart so you would freely choose to follow. And, and what you've got to ask yourself today is, am I, am I, am I in that state? <laughs> am, I, am I condemned in my sin on my way to hell? Or, or am I uncondemned because I know this gospel and I believe this gospel and I stake my life upon this gospel and I actually see this gospel changing my life? Paul makes it really clear this is for everyone. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In one fell swoop, he basically says, to everyone in the entire universe. The Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Uh, and this is not, by the way, expressing preference like Jews are first in line, and then you're next, Italians are at the end. You know, it's nothing like this, okay? He's writing to Rome, by the way. You know, I'm not going to say that to him, right? To the Jew first and to the Greek, not expressing preference, but historical precedence. The gospel came to the Jews before it came to the Gentiles. And what you'll see is like a golden thread going through Romans is the fact that the gospel overcomes distinctions between people. Now, we have a hard time overcoming it, but the gospel doesn't. Two things during the, during the two centuries before Christ appeared led the Jews to insist on how distinctive they were. First, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to eradicate the Jews. They revolted. And it strengthened their resolve to maintain their distinctives. But the second was the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, the, the diaspora. Uh, by Jesus' time, more Jews lived outside of Palestine than in it. So here they are, um, minorities in hostile cultures. And so they're focused on being separate from the culture. Now, there's a historian, Suetonius, who said this about Emperor Claudius that he expelled all the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of 
Crestus. And a lot of, most scholars think Crestus is a corruption of the term Christ. The idea would be referring to Jewish disputes about whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. So a 5th century writer, Orosius, puts the event at A.D. 49, which fits very nicely with Acts 18, verse 2. Priscilla and Aquila were in Corinth during Paul's second missionary journey because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now stay with me here. Uh, This would have greatly affected this fledgling Christian church in Rome. Uh, They would have originated from the synagogue. Most of the Christians would have been Jewish. And now they're suddenly forced to leave. Now, Claudius is not going to say, you're a Jew, you're out. Oh, you're a Jewish Christian, you can stay. No, all Jews leave. And so left behind are Gentile believers, and the church becomes less and less Jewish. So by Claudius' death in AD 54, the Jews are starting to return to Rome. And so what happens is, these Jewish Christians are returning to Rome, Priscilla and Aquila are named in Romans 16. They're in Rome. They're filtering back into the church. And they're finding they're they're now the minority in the church. So there's these warnings in Romans to avoid tensions between Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 11 and mostly chapter 14 and 15. Now go back up to chapter 1, verse 14, when Paul says he's under obligation. He's obligated to both Greeks, barbarians, wise and foolish. And he uses some words, barbarians and wise and foolish, that we're dividing Roman society. And he's saying to to the people, I am going to preach the gospel to all the groups that are labeled in Rome. Greeks, barbarians, wise and foolish. He's no respecter of persons. He expresses responsibility to the educated and uneducated, the sophisticated and unsophisticated, the privileged and the underprivileged. Because like Jesus, he knew something about the gospel, that it is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and all that. And all people are equally lost without Christ or equally saved by him through faith in him. Think about the first person that Jesus revealed himself to as Messiah. It was an adulterous woman who had many husbands and was living with a man, not her husband. And she was a Samaritan. She was despised by Jews. And yet Jesus drew her to himself in loving compassion and used her to bring many Samaritans to faith in him. See, the gospel doesn't put people in the boxes we put them in. The gospel smashes stereotypes. The gospel puts people together in the body of Christ from different age groups and ethnicities and economic levels and life situations who wouldn't normally come together outside the church. What have we done to the church? We have age-segregated, ethnically separated, life-stage-oriented the church, but we see that the Bible doesn't slice and dice people like that. And we have an opportunity as believers to radically show how the gospel radically changes our lives. How do you glorify God through a life transformed by the gospel? One of the ways you do it is by not caving into the temptation to categorize people. To get to know and love people. To share the word of God with people and pray for them. And it's amazing what God can do when you don't judge people on appearance, when you don't profile, when you don't be judge and jury. Now I realize that restaurants all over the place have signs that say, we reserve the right to refuse service. Don't refuse to serve the gospel to all. 
He says the Jew first and then the Greek. There are no boundaries. He's basically saying there's no boundaries to where the gospel can go. There's no barriers. No one is such a sinner that they are beyond the power of the gospel. Now, we live in a time when there's lifestyle boundaries all around, and they're all being drawn, and we can be drawn into that. Oh, they don't look the part. Mm-mm, they, they don't seem savable. Uh, they're beyond the scope of the gospel. Really? Who speaks light into the darkness? God does. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So anyone is savable. And yes, we live in a time of rampant, rationalized, forced normalization of many non-biblical, God-dishonoring behaviors in America today. Now, what will happen as, as you literally try to live a life pleasing to God and stand on the word, you will be viewed as hateful and unbending. All I can tell you is the Bible is loving and unbending. So we ought to love all sorts of people trapped in all sorts of sin. And don't put anyone outside the scope of God's saving power. That there is no category of person beyond the reach of the gospel. We have to wonder about ourselves and whether we're conformed to this world's thinking or or unconformed to the renewing of our minds by the Spirit of God and by the gospel. Just the other day, my neighbor Quinn, he's a geologist, he was standing in the yard with a gun. He's holding it up, and he says, hey, I tested our soils with this radar gun. And he says to me, he goes, there's no lead or harmful things in our soil. And I'm like, yes! Seriously, I was like, this is cool. <laughs> We're not poisoning ourselves with what we plant in the, in the soil. We have clean, healthy soil to grow healthy things in. What's a healthy soil for a Christian? A true believer who's not ashamed of? Offended by or stingy with God's power to save. And you have to realize something. You have to realize this. You've got to grasp it. If not, you're going to be confused. The gospel that saves is a gospel that offends. And an inoffensive gospel is no gospel. There are people that will say to you, we need to be less confrontational in our evangelism efforts. We need to avoid offending people. It's it's. It's easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar. Well, isn't it a good thing we're not trying to catch flies? We're fishing for souls, right? Now, of course, we fear witnessing to our family and neighbors and friends because we don't want to be seen as the bad guy or the weird guy or whatever. And by the way, there's one church I heard of that found a way to not offend. At their vacation Bible school, they invited kids to let the big JC be your best friend. Not the gospel. The true gospel offends sinners. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 1 Peter 2.8 says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who refuse to believe and obey the gospel. The world hated Jesus in his message. He said, look, if, if you follow me, uh, it's going to happen to you too. 
The world hated him. They loved the food. They loved the, the healings. They loved the big crowds. But this demand to die to yourself and follow Jesus was just a little bit over the top. People still think this. But Jesus promised that those who serve him will be rejected and bring on the disdain of the world. John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The only way to avoid being offensive is to join the world and reject Christ. So just for the next few moments as we close, I want to give you some real practical ways that you can, um, if you're ashamed, uh, make sure you're not ashamed, okay? So we'll give you that and, and then how you can grow in boldness and unashamedness and generosity with the gospel. But first, what if you're ashamed? What if you say, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. Don't take me out to the park. Uh, here's how, and I don't know how to talk to my neighbors or my coworkers or my family even. Here's how not to be ashamed. Number one, number one, make sure you know Jesus. Make sure you know Jesus Christ and be trusting in his finished work. Number two, make sure there's no sin clogging the arteries of your spiritual heart. Just confess your sins, repent of them, and walk in freedom in Christ. And third, reject the fear-inducing pressure to conform to a certain way of thinking or acting as an American gospel-carrying Christian. You are a carrier, but bear the good news well. The resurrection crowns Jesus Lord over all. Not just certain races, not just the educated, not just people in some countries. And so just think for a moment about the unlikely people in your life. Family, in the workplace, in the school, in your neighborhood, people of other religions, atheists. And, and think about how you can tell them the truth. Now, how do you grow in that boldness? How do you grow in that unashamedness? How do you grow in generosity with the gospel? Not stinginess, but generosity. A couple things. Number one, dwell on the love of God. It's amazing how Christ's love in our hearts breeds eagerness for the gospel. Dwell in the love of God. And number two, don't push eagerness away due to fear. Your responsibility is, to, is before God, not to what people think about you. And number three, push through fear and walk by faith, which is sort of scary sometimes, but also exhilarating. Walk by faith. And then the last thing I'll mention is you need to engage in tactful truth-telling. Tactful truth-telling. That's humble-bold, okay? That's where you're humble and bold at the same time. The, the, you got to realize this. The truth is going to offend righteously. But your tact will not offend like in an egregious way. Um, the, let the message offend people, but don't let the manner of you giving the message offend. The unoffended Christian should not be personally offensive to the unsaved, even though they take the gospel message as offensive. Uh, think about what you have received the most opposition from, from other people. And what if that one thing that you got that, all that opposition from was what could save them? Uh, the thing that caused Paul the most shame was the glorious thing he wasn't ashamed of. He wasn't offended by it. He wasn't stingy with it because it's God's power to save. He's bringing a countercultural message that the world considers crazy and untrue. 
And what that message does is it humbles us together at the foot of the cross, but it also fosters a united church that lives on mission. The reason we're not ashamed of or offended by or stingy with the gospel is because, think about this, if you're a believer, your entire being and the body of Christ is now a holy temple of God in which he dwells by his mercy and grace. That's something worth celebrating today. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Now, what I'm praying for, what I'm preaching, is not that you would go away with lots of notes and agree with what I said. (coughs) Write all the notes you want. Agree all you want. My longing is that you go away determined for the gospel to be lived by you and preached and heard and believed. That's what my longing is. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to pray that your gospel, like Paul put it, the gospel of God, your gospel, will be preached everywhere by unashamed, unoffended, unstingy gospel carriers. And thank you, Lord, that the good news is your power to rescue all who believe. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand if-